following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. All right. Hey, Merry Christmas. Good to see you guys tonight. Um, Anybody thought 12 months ago we'd still be wearing masks? No? All right. I didn't either. Uh, 22. It's all changing, though, right? Just get ready. Five more days, and then it's all different. So uh, just hold out hope. Um, Merry Christmas. My name's Chris. If I didn't get a chance to meet you, I'm the lead pastor here. Thanks for spending some of your Christmas Eve with us. Again, online folks, we love you. We're glad that you're with us. Uh, Just glad to see you um, digitally or whatever that means. All right. Um, It's Christmas Eve. And so uh, that means that I preach shorter. Okay. So kiddos, I've timed it out. This is as long as one show. Okay, it's just one show. Uh, So I know you can handle this, okay? It's going to be 22 minutes, I promise. Uh, It's like a puppy dog pal. That's what's going to happen this this evening. I also know that uh, on Christmas Eve, that that means that uh, there are going to be some people here who aren't kind of regulars or or maybe you don't call Fathom your church home. And uh, and so I thought it might be helpful for me to just tell you a little bit about me, tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I, I didn't grow up going to church. Okay, I, I wasn't raised in the church. I'm not, I wasn't a Christian growing up. Uh, we, we would have said we were Christians, but we went to, Chris, to Christmas and Easter. We were Christmas and Easter only. That's how we rolled. Uh, and so uh, I did not grow up in a church. I, some of you might feel that way today. Like, hey, I just come on Christmas and Easter. And, and if that's you, for, first of all, I'm genuinely glad that you're with us tonight. Like, I'm genuinely thankful that you would come and spend some of your holiday with us. I hope this enhances your Christmas. I hope it boosts you a little bit. But the second thing I want to say is beware. Okay, I used to be you. I mean, really, my whole life, that's, that's what I did. I just did Christmas and Easter, and now look at what I do, okay? So you just never know. You just never know what's going to happen. Just beware, okay? But, but we never went to church on Sundays uh, because my dad took us skiing on Sundays growing up. I mean, really, that's, that's the reason why, uh, other than the fact that we didn't believe in any of this stuff. But, uh, but we wanted to go skiing on Sundays because the Christians didn't go skiing on Sundays because the lines, the, they made the lines shorter, Although some of you do go skiing on Sundays and we have church discipline for that, okay? Uh, we'll talk about that another time. But, but this, this past year during COVID, I actually got to teach my, my then five-year-old daughter, Harper, how to ski, uh, which was really fun. But I learned something, and that is that my first impressions about skiing were totally different as a child than they were as an adult teaching a child, The things I thought about were vastly different. You see, my first impression as a kid was that it was easy to go up and go skiing. Like you just hopped in the van and go, right? Like that's just how we went. So my dad drove a 1980s blue Ford Econoline van with a bench in the back seat that folded into a bed, uh, all right, and curtains on the windows. So real nice. I mean, real nice. And by the way, this is before that like hashtag van life was cool. Like this wasn't trending at that point. We just had a van, right? Like that's just how we rolled. Um, and, and this was also back before everybody had four wheel drive on their vehicles all over the place. And so when we would go up skiing, we'd get to I-70, we'd hit I-70 and we'd have to pull over. Dad would get a box of metal out of the back trunk and he'd have to chain up. You've done this recently, put chains on your tires? No, you haven't. Because everybody's got four-wheel drive or all-wheel drive or the sense not to drive up the mountains with the rear-wheel drive, right? Like, that's just how it works. Um, But my impression was it was just a drive. 
I just hop in the van and we went up there, but I, it was more of a production than that, right? My second uh, first impression as a kid was that it was safe. The skiing was safe, that it was safe to go up skiing. And by the way, this is before helmets, right? We used to wear a piece of cloth on our head called a hat. I don't know if you know about that, but those are things they're, they're now lost to antiquity. Uh, everybody wears a shell on their head now, but, but it, it, it was, I thought it was safe. I just thought skiing was safe. I even thought the trip up there was safe in the O'Connell line. Okay. I thought it was all safe. Uh, I already told you about the bench seat. The way that the O'Connell line lays out is that there's two pilot seats, two captain seats in the front. There's two captain seats in the middle that pivot, which is rad. I don't know if they make them, Bob, do they make cars with pivot seats? I don't think it's safe, all right? But like, that's, that's great. And then the bench back seat. Now, as a kid, when we were going up I-70 with our chains going on uh, I-70, I'd sometimes be in the back on the, that, that bed bench thing and I'd be eating candy or whatever and I'd lose a piece of candy in the seat. And what you'd have to do at that point is you have to like, I don't know if you remember this, people, but like you have to get dig down in there. It's like a couch cushion. You have to like get in between the seat and the seat to find that little like milk dud or whatever. And every once in a while, I'd pull out something and I'd be like, "What is this?" It was it was the seatbelt. Remember those things? And I'd be like, "Daddy, what is this?" And he'd be like, "Tuck that thing back in there, boy. It's gonna fly around and hit somebody, hurt somebody back here." All right, Daddy, shove that thing back in. My impression was it was safe. Maybe it wasn't, all right? Um, And my first impression as a kid was that all my ski gear just magically appeared. It just showed up. It's like it was a permanent fixture in the O'Connell line. That's how I figured it all worked. Like I just get up there and I didn't have to worry about ski poles or ski boots or skis or ski tickets. All of my uh, clothing, it just all magically appeared miraculously in the back of the econo line. And that was the impression that I had. And, and it was only when I first started taking Harper skiing that I realized there was a bunch of in, improper first impressions I had about skiing right? Because taking a five-year-old skiing is a lot of work. In fact, I'm thinking about canceling the whole season because it's just that bad. It's really, really hard. I say all that to say first impressions, they're really important, but they can be skewed at times. We can misread our first impressions, but first impressions are a big deal. If you've got a job interview, okay, and you sit down in front of a potential employer, you might consider popping a breath mint or a piece of gum because you don't want the only thing to remember that them to remember you by was that rank coffee breath, right? First impressions, it's a big deal. First impressions, if you're going on a date, ladies, okay, gals here, if you're going on a first date, I just pray you're not wearing those ratty old sweatpants that you wear when you clean the house or whatever that say sassy on the backside, right? <laughs> Leave the sassy pants at home, upgrade a little bit, all right? That's not the first impression you want. They're really important. And, and if you're newer to the Bible, in our New Testament, the, the part that talks about Jesus, at the very beginning of that New Testament, there are four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're like the first impressions to who this Jesus is. They're like the first impressions. And each one of these is like a biography of Jesus' life. Four biographies giving us a first impression, and each one actually gives us a little bit of a different first impression about this, this baby Jesus. Each one of the Gospels takes a different angle and leaves us with a different first impression. Now, if you're new to the scriptures, you might say, why would you need four of these things? 
Why four? Why not just one? Why not just combine everything into one big thing? Why would you have four different accounts? Well, the four different gospels are written by four different people. They're named adequately. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Guess who, they, who their authors were? It wasn't Paul, all right, okay? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four different authors writing from four different perspectives, often drawing from different sources and certainly writing with different intended audiences. That's why we've got four of these things, all right? And uh, the reason why we have four that are kind of different at times is because after Jesus dies and resurrects, for the first 30 to 40 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, um, almost everything was orally transmitted. All the apostles, all the disciples, they're telling the stories. They're sharing the gospel. It's almost all oral source. And then about 30 to 40 years into that, the apostles are getting old and they don't want to lose with the next generation the things that they have seen and witnessed. And so they start writing down the gospels. And so we have these four biographies, as it were, to pass that information down. So that's the four gospels. And when it comes to Christmas, it comes to Christmas, what we're talking about tonight, if you read the four gospels, you'll see that no one gospel tells the whole story. No one gospel tells the whole story about the birth of Jesus. And by the way, some of the gospels don't tell you anything at all about the birth of Jesus. But even in their silence, they're leaving us a first impression about this child, this son of God. So what I want to do with the last few minutes that we have together is I want to identify the first impressions that each one of the four gospel writers gives us concerning the birth of Christ. And I think we can probably relate to one, if not more, each one of us. So here we go. Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel writer, um, Matthew. And the, the, the first impression that Matthew is trying to make is a historical impression. Matthew is trying to leave us with an, an, a historical first impression of who this Jesus is because Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish or Hebrew audience. He's writing to those who knew their Old Testament, who knew three quarters of this book, who knew the history of, God, of the God of Israel. And so Matthew emphasizes things in his gospel, such as Jesus being a descendant from the line of King David. That's history. Matthew will emphasize things like Jesus being the new authoritative teacher like Moses. That's again, history, Bible history. And then Matthew even begins, like Matthew 1.1 begins with a genealogy. Like, is there anything more historical than just a list of names of dead old guys? That's just like, I mean, he's the, the original ancestry.com. That's Matthew, okay? That's what he's doing, history here. But his point, Matthew's whole point in the opening of his gospel is that the birth of the Messiah happened in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures in a real time and a real place in real history. That these events actually happened. It's not made up, it's historical. And for some of you, for some of us tonight, this is the first impression you need for Christmas. You need a historical impression. Okay, believe it or not, okay, believe it or not, the fact that Jesus Christ was born, lived, died, and that the tomb was found empty three days later is a fairly widely agreed upon fact, both in the Christian world and in the non-Christian world. 
Most people agree that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived approximately two millennia ago, who was uh, alive for 33 years, was crucified by the Roman Empire, died, was buried in a tomb, and three days later, his body was no longer there. Now, obviously, not everyone believes that he was immaculately conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? Obviously, not everybody believes that Jesus physically rose from the dead, was resurrected, There's lots of theories out there about how he came about and what happened to the body afterwards. But just about every scholar agrees that this man really lived in a real time, in a real place, in real history. So what that means is that you have to decide what you're going to do with this Jesus. The historical Jesus, you have to do something with this guy. And I'll often say this to friends of mine who don't believe in Jesus I'll just say, hey, there's just lot, lots of substantial, documentable evidence for the things that Christians believe. This isn't just a blind faith that we profess to, but it will take a bit of work, intellectual work, historical work, scriptural work, to figure some of these things out. You've got to do the work to get there. So Matthew's first impression for us on Christmas is that this is real. This is historical. These events truly happened. Then on to Mark. Matthew, then Mark. Mark is the second gospel. And I would say that Mark's first impression on Christmas is a moral impression. His first impression is moral, not so much historical. And what's interesting, if you know the gospel of Mark, you know that Mark skips completely over the Christmas story entirely. He's like, baby Jesus, who? Not interested. Let's talk about him when he gets to be about age 30. That's essentially what Mark does. You open up Mark's gospel and he starts with an adult John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah, preparing the way for Jesus' ministry to begin. And so you might say, well, then why are you even talking about this today? I thought we were talking about baby Jesus. I don't want to talk about the adult Jesus tonight. Well, Mark's gospel opening with this John the Baptist story is actually important, important to our discussion tonight because The message that John the Baptist preaches in Mark chapter one is one of repentance. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in the next chapter, Jesus comes on the scene and want to guess what Jesus' message is? His message is the exact same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's as if Mark's key word is repent and He's trying to, I think, give us this impression that we can't even begin to celebrate the birth of a, of a savior until we acknowledge the reality of our brokenness and our sin. Until we are willing to repent, all the details surrounding Jesus' birth and life are rendered inconsequential. So, so follow me here. Who cares if it was a silent night or not? Which it wasn't, by the way. All right, the natural birth process, there's nothing silent, holy, bright, calm, right? Nothing at all. They should rename that song Crazy Night, right? It was on Crazy Night. And who cares? I mean, who cares about these details? Who cares if the cattle are lowing and the baby awakes? But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I mean, parents here, you tell me. You tell me, your little baby, your little infant wakes up to a cow mooing in its face. You think it's just not going to be crying at all? No, he's going to freak out. He's going to freak out. Throw that song in the trash, okay? Um, and who cares? Who cares if, if I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day? 
on Christmas day. I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas day in the morning. Okay, number one, that song's written about Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem is landlocked. There weren't any ships, okay? What is this, like a maritime Christmas hymn? I don't know what this is all about, okay? Uh, Who cares about the wise men or the angels or the shepherds? Like none of that stuff really matters unless, like Mark tells us, we're willing to change in response to it. Like, otherwise, Christmas is purely sentimentality. It's just some presents and some lights and some songs and some snacks that makes us feel good, but, but it has no lasting impact. So, so Mark would say, this is a moral Christmas. Are you willing to be changed? Maybe this Christmas for you, Mark resonates, and you are acknowledging and willing to say that your life is not how it ought to be. According to Mark, we cannot properly celebrate the birth of our Savior until we acknowledge our need to be saved. It's a moral first impression. Okay, let's move on. Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is number three, and Luke's first impression is emotional. Emotional. Now, if you know Luke, you want to argue right now, right? You don't think Luke is emotional at all because you know who Luke is. And Luke was a physician. It's Dr. Luke, actually. He's got dots and letters after his title, right? That's how Luke was. Luke was probably type A Enneagram 5. That's my guess. Okay, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing. uh, Like, Luke, Luke was about facts, this is how it happened. This is the order in which it happened. Luke, Luke works at Lockheed. You follow here? Right? He was an engineer. He lives in the suburbs. Luke has a job, and that job is directly attached, by the way, to his educational pedigree, okay? He's got a job in the field he studied. Mind-blowing, all right? <laughs> Luke wants to write a clear and precise and historical account. So then you ask, well, then why would you say that Luke is the emotional first impression in the Christmas story. Well, if you read Luke closely, first of all, it's the most complex of the Christmas stories. It's the most, uh, has the most verses. He puts the most time into the Christmas story, but Luke uniquely focuses in on the worship surrounding the birth of the child where no one else does. For example, in Luke 1 46, Luke is the only gospel writer who records Mary's response in worship to God when she finds out that she will bear his son. And he he writes it down as a song, as a poem, the Magnificat. It's Mary's song of response. In verses uh, 67 through 79, we talked a little bit about um, Zechariah. On Sunday, but Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, and after John is born, and Zechariah's mouth and his tongue are loosed, Zechariah praises God. He sings a song to Yahweh, and Luke is the only writer who captures this. Luke is the only one who tells us about the heavenly hosts praising. Like, you know, that Linus and Lucy Christmas Charlie Brown thing? That's Luke. That's Luke. Luke's the only one who talks about the shepherds praising God. And finally, when Jesus is presented in the temple in Luke chapter two, uh, an old man named Simeon sees this child and worships Yahweh because of the birth of his savior. He has seen the consolation of Israel. Luke is the only one who records these things. And perhaps, perhaps tonight for you, Christmas is more of an emotional thing. 
Like you show up here tonight and the birth of a savior who is Christ the Lord, man, that just wells up in you. This emotion, this, this fervor, this, this delight, this joy, and you just want to worship him. You're at that place where, where you're here to sing him praise. It's emotional. Much like the Psalms of the Old Testament that we see in our Old Testament, I think the details that Luke is showing us in this expression of worship, they're not simply given to us to inform us of the details, but to invite us to join in the response. When all the facts are considered, and Luke compiles the facts, okay? But when all those facts are considered, we discover that the Christmas story is not only true, but it's glorious. It's beautiful. It's, it's true, yes, but it also is moving. I think that's Luke. I think that's Luke. Then finally, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, is certainly the most unique gospel in what it says about Christmas. And I would say John's first impression is relational. John ends with relationship, okay? The gospel according to John does not begin with the birth of Jesus, similar to the gospel of Mark. He doesn't start with the birth per se. Uh, He doesn't start with the ministry of John the Baptist like Mark does. He doesn't start with the history of Israel like Matthew does or even Luke does. Uh, And it's actually why I think when it comes to the gospels, people love John more than any other gospel. I think people love John more than the other gospels because John was like a creative. He was an artist. He was a musician, right? John would have, John lived in the highlands, in a bungalow in the highlands. You following me here? Okay. He likes craft coffee, craft beer, skinny jeans. He's all tatted up, right? He's got like swoopy hair. Okay. He's an artist. He was creative. He's probably unemployed, but, but that's, that's John. He's okay. John's okay. He's in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Right? Like that's, that's John. And all the other disciples are like, man, are you okay? You okay, man? Cause you sound like you're weird. Right? Like, why don't you just, why don't you just say what you mean? Why don't you just tell us what happened? And John's like, it's not about what happened. All right. It's about how we experienced what happened, man. Right? Like that's John. That's John. Okay. But according to John, Jesus was with God in a relationship. And what's more, Jesus was God in a perfect, loving, triune relationship before time even started. He begins with a relationship between Jesus and his father. Then in John 1, he moves to Jesus' relationship with the world. The word became flesh and dwelt with us. He came to his own and to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's John's gospel. It's highly relational language. And as it relates to the Christmas story, John's account is similar to Mark's in that it it starts in this immediate personal place, not telling the story, but starting with you, not with your sin when it comes to John, but with your heart, with your relationship. Jesus is the unique son of God who came into the world so that you might have hope in his name. So the four gospels give four edges, four edges to the Christmas story. And and the Christmas story, I think, as I read this this year, it meets us where we are. 
each one of us in a different way, right? Some of us, we need that historical push. I mean, 2,000 years ago, are you sure these things really happened? Matthew's like, yeah, in accordance with the scriptures, these happened in a real time, in a real place. These are historical facts. Others, though, need a moral push, like Mark gives us. Right, man, you've just, this year is, these last two years, it's, life's been hard. And you're barely keeping your head above water and things are breaking all around you and you need to be called to repent. Not to a baby, but to your savior. Some are emotionally ready to just come. They want to just come and adore him. When they think of all that Christ has done for them, they fall on their face and they worship him for who he is. And then all the Christmas story is meant, just like John does, is meant to draw all of us into a closer relationship with him. All four gospels, I think, are purposeful in how they begin with a first impression about Jesus. So to end tonight, what do you, what do you believe on these things? What do you need to hear tonight about these things? What edge, what first impression might the Lord be using in your heart this evening? Because the child who was born will grow up to be a man and that man would die on a cross and would wash us with his blood, cleansing us from our sin, all from this little town, O Bethlehem. Do you know this, Jesus? Do you know this, man? If not, you can know him. <laughs> you can know him. You can follow him. All you have to say to him is, I want to follow you. I give you my life. I mean, this is the call from John, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. A relationship with him. So let me read from one of the gospels. Here's what we're celebrating tonight. I think this is Matthew. I didn't write it down, so correct me if I'm wrong. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. That baby is Emmanuel, God with us. He has come on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost and salvation is found in no other name under heaven or on earth or under the earth. The name of Jesus Christ alone is the name by which we are saved. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we bless you tonight, this, this Christmas Eve, this end of our progress and longing and hope as we look to a manger, to a stable, to a young couple, to a baby born. May we, got, may we, may we not get lost in in the details and the sentimentality and the rituals and in the, the memories that we have, but may we see this for what it is. The entrance of you, the word become flesh, dwelling among us, tabernacling with us. May we see Christmas for what it really is, the birth of our savior, who is Christ the Lord. Lord, I do pray that through these gospels, through these first impressions, you would speak and impress our hearts. Show us what we need to hear this Christmas that we might worship you and go deeper in a relationship with you. 
So Lord, we love you. We bless you this Christmas Eve. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit.